I'm delighted to introduce to you the guest speaker for the Centennial Annual General Assembly, Reverend Dr. Jim Lyon. And I know that some of us previously thought that he was Lyons, but he is one lion. And I'm not sure that he will roar tonight, but I know that he will roar at some point during the assembly. And we look forward to hearing him. We believe God has sent him to us in Jamaica at this particular time in our history for a very, very special work and for a major impact on the Church of God in Jamaica. He will be introduced tomorrow evening in a more fulsome way. But I just want you to know that I have heard him, I have met him, and I am convinced that he's the one God has appointed for this hour with the Church of God at the Centennial. I want to invite him to come and to speak to us as the General Director of the Church of God in Jamaica. After he has spoken, we will, Church of God in North America, uh, Church of God. Did I say Jamaica? Yes. Uh, that's because we made him a Jamaican today. <laughs> All right. So I, I want to invite him to the platform. And when he is finished speaking, I will invite one choir, the Region 6 Youth Choir, to come and to give us the benediction. So... Reverend Dr. Lyon, may I invite you to the platform and to speak to us. It is a privilege to stand here with you on this, the opening salve of the centennial of the Assembly's meeting of the Church of God here in Jamaica. And when I was invited into the hall this evening and welcomed, I was ushered right to the front row. I felt a little self-conscious coming to the front thinking that these seats might be reserved for others more important than I, or perhaps relatives or family members of those who would perform. But I just have to say I'm very thankful that I had a front row seat tonight for what has been from the beginning to the end a kind of tour de force of tremendous performances that have helped me see not just the breadth of talent here in the church, but the soul of the church. Everything I've witnessed tonight has told a story. Every performer, whether it be a recitation, a vocal, or even the instruments of the drums, all of them have told a story. And I think I can't go further without acknowledging also my extreme blessing received by the hand of your band. What a phenom right here. These guys, I watched not only undergird those that were on the stage, but improvise along the way in the most perfect way. I've heard a lot of things, none better than what I've seen here tonight. And that said, I know the hour is late, and I'm not sure what I could add as a kind of frosting to the cake, as we say in the States, except to maybe tell you a story. And it's a kind of story that I think the Lord has inspired for just a time such as this. Would you bow with me in prayer first? Our Father, this evening we thank you for all that we have seen and heard, for the Spirit in this place, for your hand on this people, for the anointing of those who have walked before me on this platform, 
and for your presence here with us still now. May every word spoken, every thought thought, may every conclusion drawn and every minute spent here together tonight still be held in the palm of your hand. And I pray in the single and sacred name of Christ Jesus the Lord for his glory alone. Amen. A long time ago, in a faraway place, there was a young girl born. She was the youngest of four, born to a poor farmer who lived in a stone cottage with a thatched roof, a place where there was no indoor plumbing or electricity. It was not available in those days in that place. They were poor people, but people of deep faith, Roman Catholic faith, on the far west coast of Ireland, in that place called the Galtecht, where English has never been spoken as a first language. That 20% of Ireland which still today speaks the Irish language because the English and their thousand years of subjugation of the island never reached that far to impose English on the edge. And on that far west coast in a tiny village nestled into the hillside just above the opening of the Galway Bay into the stormy North Atlantic, there was born on St. Patrick's Day, this the fourth and last child, to Patrick and Sarah Dronan. They named the girl Mary, Maureen in the Irish Gaelic, and they carried her off on that cold, damp day to the parish church for the St. Patrick's Day Mass. As she would grow older, her siblings would move on in life, but she, at the tender age of 20, still unmarried and in the world in which she lived, in the far remote corner of that ancient village, at the age of 20, unmarried, why, what were her prospects in their thinking except that she would become a nun in a convent, or maybe she would somehow stay at home and care for her aged father, her mother having already been gone. In the end, she received an invitation to visit her aunt in a far away part of the country there thinking that she might be able to go forward in life and figure things out. She was quite shy and not English fluent, but she went to a part of the world where English was the language. She was now paralyzed not only just by her intricate shyness, but by her inability to speak English in a form that could be understood easily, and people would laugh and stare and point, for the Irish have often in history been the butt of many jokes and derision. While there, visiting her aunt, she came into the company of a bright young Irishman from the north of Ireland, from Antrim. His eyes flashed with a steel blue just like those of her father. He spoke with passion and conviction about Irish politics. He was a member of the Irish Republican Army, which for 250 years had been working to wrest Ireland free from the British Empire. He spoke as her father spoke, as he pounded his fist on the table and dreamed of an Ireland free. The flash of his smile, the Irish grin, his ability to tell a tale and to sing a song, to do a jig, all of this reminded her of that home far away that she longed to return to but could not. And one thing led to another, and they fell into each other's embrace. And then to her horror, at just the age of 21, she found herself with child and not married. She was terrified because in her world, to be pregnant and not married, would cast not just herself but her whole family into a despicable and desperate condition. 
People in the village would no longer purchase the milk from the cows her father raised. The family would be ostracized and set to the side. The church had been enfranchised by the local authorities to intervene and would likely seize her child from her arms and send her to a convent and send the child to a workhouse. She was terrified of all these outcomes and so profoundly embarrassed that she could not speak to the father of the child to even say that she had conceived his. And so she ran away. She ran away into hiding, not certain what she would do. In the end, this Catholic Irish girl fell into the company of a very kind and loving group of Protestant believers who arranged for her to live in the home of a physician while she carried the child to term. And then when the baby was born, she made the very brave decision to relinquish the child into the hands of these Protestant believers who had an orphanage. And as she did, and she held the baby close, she loved that child more than words could tell. But knowing she could not keep the baby and provide any life, she relinquished it in what may have been the most terrifying moment of her life. She named baby Michael after the archangel who would fight for the truth of God. And she placed the baby into the hands of others. Those people took the baby and arranged for that child to be adopted. And that child's name was changed. And I am that child. I. Born Michael Jordan, renamed James Donald Lyon, and adopted into a family that were pillars in the Church of God. Now, as I grew up, I knew nothing of my story of origin, for the adoption took place before I could speak. But I knew I was adopted and wondered, who was I and where did I come from? The family that adopted me, that gave me life and purpose, and a name, why I owe my life to them then and today still. But every now and then you wonder, do I look like someone? Do I laugh like someone? And when I had my own son 33 years ago next month, and he ran across a room at the age of three and someone said, oh look at your boy Jacob, he laughs just like you as he turned and threw his head back with a broad, broad smile. I thought, do I look like someone? And through a long train of events as a consequence of my second son becoming ill, for which there was no remedy, and only a genetic test could help understand what was causing his difficulty, which at the time seemed life-threatening, through a long train of events and through a court proceeding, the files of my case were opened, and I was introduced to the man who was my father by birth. I was 39 years old, and I'll never forget the day I stood at a door and knocked with my wife by my side, my wife, interestingly, I had no idea. I married Maureen Elizabeth McGlynn O'Connor, an Irish woman descended from grandparents who had come from Ireland to the States. My wife Maureen and I stood at a door waiting for it to open. I was absolutely fascinated about who I would see. You know, as a young man, I was fascinated by how I would age. I'm an old man now, not so interesting. But then, I wanted to know, how was I going to age? What if everyone in my bloodline at the age of 40 turned into a hunchback? <laughs> Would I go bald? 
Would I have crow's feet by my eyes? You know, when you're adopted, you never see anyone who looks like you. And so, I was so fascinated by the physical presence of this man that I was shortly going to see who was my father, who had never heard that he even had a son until 39 years later when he was told by the court. The door opened and there he was. He was somewhat shorter than I, but looked very much like me, and I'm proud to say there are no hunchbacks in my family line. <laughs> we were ushered into a room where my wife and I sat on a couch facing my father, who never married my birth mother. He had no idea what happened to her. It was not until 39 years on that he understood what had happened and why she ran away. He sat down alone on the couch this way, facing my wife and I. And as we sat down, Maureen and I on this side, and Edward Jordan, my father by birth, on this side. As we sat down, my wife literally gasped out loud. And do you know why? Because as we sat down, both of us sat down, crossed our legs, leaned forward with exactly the same move. And my wife had never seen another man on the planet that moved like her husband. What do you say in a moment like that? What's the first question you ask? I said, well, Edward, tell me what it was like growing up in the county Antrim in the north of Ireland. What was that like? You know, I, I saw a film once with John Wayne called The Quiet Man. Was it like that? He looked at me very seriously and he said, do you really want to know? I said, yes. Do you really want to know, he said with great intensity, what it was like growing up there? Yes, sure. He said, when I was born, all of Ireland was under British rule. And they imposed a curfew where all the Irish people had to be in their houses with their lights extinguished by 11 o'clock at night every night. And my father, as a silent act of pacific protest, an Irish patriot, would light a kerosene lantern and put it in every window at 11 o'clock just to prove that he would not be submitted to the rule of Westminster. As time moved on, I grew up in a world where the British soldiers came and beat down the doors to our houses and pulverized our furniture and ransacked our homes and beat our mothers and our wives. I made a decision before I was a teenager that I would join the resistance, he called it. I would join the Irish Republican Army. I would give my life to the independence of Ireland. I knew nothing of his story, but as he spoke, my eyes grew wide. I, I wanted to say, did you ever have like a birthday party or a Christmas tree? That's the kind of recollection I'd imagine. Instead, I got this powerful polemic about Irish history and the cause of independence. He said, I made a decision that I would give my life so that all of Ireland could be free. And then he stood up and he launched into a whole catalog. The British came here a thousand years ago and took our island. They gave up India. They gave up Kenya. They gave up Jamaica. They gave up Australia. They gave up New Zealand. They gave up everywhere. They've given up everything. Why can't they give up my island? I looked at him. I said, and so... He said, I organized work stoppages at the Belfast shipyards. I was involved in all kinds of protests. And in time, I was arrested for my crimes of patriotism. And I, like a cri common criminal, was thrown into the Crumlin Road Jail in Belfast. 
And anyone who knows anything about the Irish resistance knows the Crumlin Road was the place of great darkness. He described his years behind bars at Crumlin Road, the way in which he was treated. He said, I was not a criminal. I was a political prisoner. I was put in solitary confinement. I was denied food. I was subjected to all kinds of humiliations that I could not hear described in mixed company. But as he talked, I knew it was for him real. As he shared his story, my jaw dropped down. Finally, I said, I know nothing of Irish politics. And honestly, I, I kind of like Princess Diana. Sorry. <laughs> but what's clear to me is that you have given your life and suffered so much on principle. You are not a wealthy man. You have not gained anything materially. Your whole life has been driven and consumed, and you have lost so much as a consequence of your devotion to principle. How is it that you now sit before me as a sane man if even half of what you've described is true? How is it that your mind is still together? How is it that you can speak to me as a cognitive, intelligent, and intellectually sound man? What did you do? How did you survive? And he looked straight across at me, and he spoke to me words that have been etched in my heart that I have never forgotten, and I quote to you now exactly as he said them. He said, I survived. No, I overcame because I never forgot who I was. I am a free-born Irishman. This is my island, it's not theirs. And they can send their troops from London. They can make their laws at Westminster. They can impose their curfews. They can pay and force their taxes. They can do whatever they will, but they will never be able to change what God has ordained. I am an Irishman, and they are not. And as he spoke to me, and let me say, that as I have recited to you what he said, I am his exact replica in my gestures and my voice and presentation. You are not just the product of your nurturing. There is something about nature in you too. And as I listened to him speak, I thought, why, he's a preacher just like me. Only he preaches about Ireland and I preach about Jesus. And folks, I'm here to tell you that as I walked away from that meeting and I became very well acquainted with him before he passed away in 1995, I walked away understanding very something important, and that is, we are not children of chance. We are children of God. There is a providential appointment for each of us. None of you are here tonight by some kind of blind, random chance. You're here because God brought you here. You have not been introduced to the church of God by some kind of folly or good fortune. You have been introduced by the Holy Spirit's appointment. The church of God as a movement was not simply the product of some madman's fancy at the end of the 19th century. It was the call of God by his own divine voice, which still breathes into the movement. We are all here people of destiny and of providence. For as Ephesians tells us, before the foundation of the world, it was God's good pleasure to adopt us as his very own children through his son, Jesus Christ, that we might be holy and blameless before him. 
Never forget who you are. I promise you, the enemy of our souls will try and intimidate and frighten, rob, steal, and destroy. And he is powerless if you never forget who you are. You are a child of God. You have been redeemed by the blood. And you and I both are part of this sacred family that God has breathed into being. The movement, the movement that we hold dear is at a critical juncture, at an historic pivot, at a moment not just in the United States and Canada, but in Jamaica, in Kenya, in India, in all parts of the world, in 86 nations. The movement of the Church of God is at a historic moment where it must once again take grasp of its identity. Who are we? This is the question that we must own. And the answer is what will give us a whole new chapter for new generations of taking the world for Jesus. Who are you? Who am I? I'll tell you. Ephesians 2.10. For you are God's masterpiece created new in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works that God planned long ago beforehand that you should walk in them now. Never forget it. No matter what you hear, no matter what you experience, no matter what the new day brings, never forget this. You are God's masterpiece, created new in Christ Jesus. How will we survive? How will we triumph? How will we overcome? Here's how we will never forget who we are. Thanks for having me tonight. Godspeed.